So I want to thank Barry uh, very much for, uh, I wouldn't say inviting me to speak, I would say insisting, <laughs> insisting that I speak. Um, unlike our other two speakers, I'm not actually, uh, Mishnah is not actually what I usually teach. Um, but um, I very much uh, was happy to accept Barry's invitation to speak in memory of Rivka. Um, and um, we're happy to be here with Barry and his family, those overseas and those, and those present today. Louder, please. Louder, please. Okay. I'm going to hold this. Really? Is that better? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, what I want to talk about is not actually to focus on a text of Mishnah, but rather um, to focus on Mishnah as the core text of Torah Shabbat the oral Torah. And um, what I started thinking about a few years ago um, was what does it mean that we have a Torah that we consider to be an oral Torah, Torah Shabbat Peh? And this is something, of course, that I've always thought about, but I guess I, until a few years ago, when I thought about the notion of Torah Shabbat Peh, I generally thought of it in terms of um, the difference between Torah Shabbat Peh and Torah Shvitav, Torah that's written, Torah that's oral. And I thought of Torah that's oral as opposed to Torah that's written um, as having the characteristic of flexibility, the possibility of growth, where it's not etched in stone uh, the way Torah Shvitav is. And that was sort of always the uh, aspect of Torah Shvitav that I uh, focused on. Uh, just to give sort of one, uh, one little anecdote that kind of characterizes or exemplifies this idea of Torah Shabbat Peh. Um, when I was in, in fifth grade, my, actually my elementary education was the formative education in my life. I, I hope that's true for some other people in the room, but it, it actually was. And uh, my fifth grade teacher name was Rabbi Gold. Those who went to Manhattan Day School or have kids go to Manhattan Day School, he's uh, I believe still teaching there. Um, and I remember Rabbi Gold saying one day, um, actually when we were learning from Ash, uh, but we were talking about interpretations of the text, and Rabbi Gold told the children um, that any interpretation that any of us offers uh, is part of Torah Shabbat Peh. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful, uh, very powerful statement, and that really uh, speaks to the notion of Torah Shabbat Peh as that which uh, is not fixed, but which rather uh, grows, changes, right, is always renewed with each person who, who speaks it. Um, and, and again, that was always kind of the way I thought about Torah Shabbat Peh. Um, a few years ago, I, I started teaching, I started thinking about a very different aspect of Torah Um This came about because I was actually assigned to teach an undergraduate course called Introduction to Rabbinic Literature. And as anybody who teaches knows, there's nothing harder to teach than an introduction to something, uh, because you really kind of have to be able to tell people what something's about who don't know, as opposed to people who are entering into conversation about kind of something that we all already know about. Um, so I was trying to find books that might help me. Um, uh, talk about uh, different uh, texts of rabbinic literature and to help me introduce those to the students who hadn't yet been introduced to those. Um, and I came across a, a book uh, by a famous scholar, uh, a book about Mishnah. And um, the book said something like the following. It said, if you want to know what Mishnah is, do what you would do with any book. Open it, read it from beginning to end, and you'll know what the book's about. And all of a sudden it struck me that that's so wrong. Right? <laughs> In other words, that that's always how I've always thought of any text, right? But actually, that when you think about it, at least for the first several hundred years of the text that we know of as first of all, pet text, nobody ever was introduced or nobody ever first accessed any one of these texts by reading it. Uh, even if it may or may not be true, scholars uh, have different opinions about this, even though it may or may not be true that some of these texts actually exist in a written form, uh, it's certainly the case 
uh, that these texts, at least throughout the Goonic period, actually, uh, were taught orally. Um, and so it's actually not the case that anybody would ever uh, open a book and, and read it, a book of Tosh Baal read it. I'm going to try putting this down again because I'm going to need my hand. So tell me if this works. Does that, does that work? Yeah. yeah um, so uh, you all have your handouts in front of you, right? So um, if, you, um, if you look at the first page, uh, you'll see the top two texts are uh, similar somewhat different. You can look at either one if you look at the, the bold section. Uh, but this is a very, very famous statement uh, of uh, a differentiation between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Peh. Darash Rabbi Yehuda Bar Nachmani in Mitzurgmanei Dureish Lakish. Katuga Chadomer Ketov Lecha Echad Vorim Ha'elech. I apologize that the texts are not in translation, but you'll, you'll have to depend on me for that. Katuga Chadomer Ketov Lecha Echad Vorim Ha'elech. This is actually the same scriptural verse. Uh, write these things uh, because on the basis of these things, uh, I have established my covenant with you, uh, but on the basis of these things is right? on the mouth of these things. Um, so the first phrase says, write these things. The second phrase says, on the mouth of these things. Right. This tells you that things which are oral, uh, you are not permitted to, uh, to say them or to transmit them in writing, and things that are in writing, you are not permitted to say them or to transmit them um, orally. Um, so what we see here is that we both we, we have a, a, a kind of a kind of a manifesto, right? That you're not you're actually not permitted, you're not supposed to uh, transmit uh, oral Torah in writing. Um, and in fact, as I just pointed out, we know that this, uh, whether or not this was uh, seen as a hard and fast prohibition, that in fact, in terms of how texts uh, were taught and studied, uh, we know that the core texts of Torah Shabal Peh, Mishnah, and in fact, even Gemara, which is hard for us to imagine, right, that the Babli itself, throughout the Gonic period, uh, in the Babylonian Yeshivot, was actually uh, studied as an oral text. That people actually, or at least some people, uh, actually knew this text by heart, and people, for the most part, were not accessing this text in writing, and certainly were never introduced to this text uh, in written form. And so um, when, I, when I read that sentence, right, that you just open the Mishnah, you read it from beginning to end, and then you know what it's about, a sentence which on the one hand seems so obvious, that's how we read a book, and all of a sudden I realized it's so not obvious that anybody ever actually accessed Mishnah or other uh, texts of Torah Shabbat had that way. Um, I started thinking at that time about um, how did people, in fact, learn rabbinic texts right, in the days when these texts were still studied orally. And in particular, I started thinking about how would a person first learn a rabbinic text? And how would you first be introduced to any particular uh, rabbinic text? And at that point, I started thinking about the meaning of a Torah Shabbat Peh uh, in a completely different way. I started focusing not um, on the aspect of kind of flexibility as opposed to fixedness, uh, but I started really focusing on what does it mean uh, to have a body of Torah that is exclusively uh, taught orally and exclusively uh, learned orally. And I started thinking quite a bit about what might be different about learning a text orally uh, from the way in which we tend to learn uh, text and uh, from the way in which we tend to perceive text today. So that's what I want to talk about with you uh, this afternoon. The, the title of the talk says an, ex an educational exploration 
I hope the word educational didn't turn anybody off. I think education is a very, very big word about how people grow and think, which is nothing bigger than that. So I hope we think of education writ large. Um, but it is um, exploration because this is really exploratory. This is really about uh, things I've been thinking a lot about. I think I have some ideas to offer, but it's really, uh, it's not so much something we know as something that uh, we can imagine, right? We're trying to imagine um, how people thought about text, how people learned, how people taught, how people studied in a world that's so different from our own. Um, I think this question actually is very timely because we're kind of at the cusp of a very different way uh, of accessing knowledge, right? Where we are moving rather rapidly um, from a world in which we uh, access knowledge through books, which has been the dominant mode of accessing knowledge for the last many hundreds of years, um, to an electronic universe. Uh, where how many people in this room have a smartphone? How many of those smartphones are on? Okay, turn them off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, where we have knowledge at our finger, infinite, an infinite amount of knowledge at our fingertips, literally at our fingertips at every single moment of the day. Um, and where uh, in the world of education, uh, for financial and other reasons, uh, people have started talking about blended learning, right? Kids accessing a lot of this knowledge um, through uh, web-based uh, web um, uh, media as opposed to uh, through teachers or through books. So it's, I think, a very timely, uh, timely question to think about, uh, to think about how uh, differences in how uh, the technology through which we access, uh, or the media through which we access knowledge, uh, has an impact on the way we think about, uh, about texts, about teachers, and about uh, teaching and learning. Um, so that's what I want to be uh, thinking about together with you. Um, I'm not going to be looking at all um, at a different, um, very interesting set of questions, which is, um, how the fact that the texts of Torres of were transmitted orally, how that impacts on uh, questions of um, composition or questions of how fixed these texts were, how fluid these texts are. That's uh, a whole interesting debate, a whole interesting set of questions which we're not going to talk about. What I really want to focus on simply is uh, what implications does oral study and oral transmission of texts um, have for how we see a teacher, um, for how we understand the process of learning, for what we see as the role of a student and for what our conception of a text is. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, one couple more words of introduction. What, what I want to not do right, is fall into a kind of dichotomy that some scholars make uh, between a literate culture and an oral culture. Right? There are cultures in which writing is unknown, in which everything is oral. There are cultures like ours in which writing is known. And a lot of scholars write about the difference between a, an oral culture and a literate culture. Um, when we're talking about transmission of Torah Pet in the days when it was in fact transmitted orally, um, that's a place within a written culture, right? within a literate culture. It's a culture that has writing, um, that knows what books are, and yet nevertheless, right, very deliberately, um, these particular texts are being transmitted and studied orally. Right? So uh, I don't want to kind of fall into the dichotomy between two radically different kinds of cultures, but rather point out that you can have a culture that has writing and reading and that still chooses uh, to transmit and to study texts orally. And I actually want to give an example of that from very far afield. Um, this is a book called The Sound of Two Hands Clapping. Anybody ever hear this book? Uh, it's not a book too many people know. Uh, it's by a fellow named George Dreyfus, um, a former, a former uh, Buddhist monk who, of course, um, is Jewish. And, uh, and his subtitle is The Education of a Tibetan Buddhist Monk. Uh, George Dreyfus came from Switzerland, uh, grew up as a probably not uh, tremendously engaged uh, Jew, got very interested in Buddhism, 
and uh, spent many, many years uh, in a Buddhist monastery, uh, not like in California, but like in, uh, I guess, India, right? And, um, and a particular kind of Buddhist monastery, not uh, the kind that we tend to think of, uh, which is where monks are engaged in meditation, uh, but rather a scholastic Buddhist monastery where uh, monks are engaged in something not all that different from what we would think of as a yeshiva, right? where they study uh, text and debate uh, the meaning uh, of these texts and study commentaries on these texts. And um, Dreyfus, and this is happening I don't know, probably around the 1970s, 1980s, okay? so not very long ago. Um, so Dreyfus describes uh, the following um, thing. He says, um, most youngs, most monks, sorry, most monks start their careers when they are young, between 6 and 20. Um, and their first task is to memorize a lot of material. Memorization typically proceeds as follows. Every day the young monk memorizes a fixed and gradually increasing amount of textual material. Usually he starts with a couple of sentences, gradually increasing to one side or both sides of a folio. Soon uh, some become memory virtuosi, able to memorize five or even ten folios a day. In the evening the student meets with his teacher, who examines him on the material learned that day and gives him a new piece. The teacher recites the piece, making sure that the student knows exactly how to read the passage. This position is, in reading is particularly important for mantras. Though they are in Sanskrit, they're written in the Tibetan alphabet, hence they are difficult to read. The teacher's reading is quite important. It is considered a form of transmission and authorizes the student to work on the text. Most Tibetan monks insist on the importance of such transmission. Once the teacher is satisfied, the student is ready for the next day's memorization. So we'll come back to this text later, uh, but the reason I wanted to mention it now um, is because we see that this is a culture in which the texts are available and writing. In fact, this uh, student monk is going to be spending the rest of the day engaging with the text in writing. Um, nevertheless, the student, number one, first has to hear the text from a teacher. Right? He cannot, it's, it's forbidden right, for him to start on that text until he hears it read by a teacher. So his first access to the text is through the, the oral hearing from the teacher. Um, and secondly, the student's job now, before the student can go on to discuss the meaning of the text, to debate about the meaning of the text, to learn commentaries on the text, or to go back to the teacher and talk more about the text, the student's first test is going to be to commit this text to memory. So I emphasize this just to point out, uh, again, that it's perfectly, right, that it's not true that texts are only learned orally uh, when, as a kind of, you know, second, you know, right? if you don't have them in writing, you learn them orally. Right? There are cultures like this uh, Buddhist monastery uh, in which texts are available and accessible in writing, and yet still you have to hear the text from a teacher, um, you have to say it orally, you have to commit it, uh, to memory, and that's very similar, I think, in certain ways, um, to how it would have been hundreds and hundreds of years ago in learning Toshabal Pat, with the difference being that the text would not exist before you were in writing. You would have to hear it enough times to actually commit it to memory. Um, so, um, so again, once we once we think of this, I mean, once we think that we can try to imagine, and it's really just about imagination, we can't know, right? But once we try to imagine a world in which even though writing and reading is available, uh, texts are um, learned and transmitted orally. Um, so when I started thinking about this, I, I, I started reading all sorts of uh, different uh, things, um, some, of, some of them about uh, oral societies, even though, again, as I said, we're not necessarily talking about a society that doesn't have writing. You know, we're talking about a society that has writing but chooses to study orally. And um, one book I found really useful is this book by Ang, 
<laughs> called uh, Orality and Literacy. And Ahn makes uh, several, I think, really interesting points. Um, and one point he makes is that um, nowadays, when we read a book, right, that reading a book is actually an, an intensely private um, activity. Right? Um, especially now with Kindle, where right, it's even more private, right, which is why all sorts of books in, in, in the past people would have been embarrassed to be seen reading. They can tell on Kindle because nobody can know what you're reading. Right? But, but reading is an intensely private activity. Often there's nobody else around. But even if there are other people around, they're not engaged in that activity. It's, it's you and the book. Right? You are accessing the words of the book totally privately without the uh, intervention or involvement or engagement of anybody else uh, who's around you. And on this point is that that would have been completely different in a world uh, in which uh, texts were uh, oral, even in, a man- even in a world in which there were manuscripts, right? because very few people would have those manuscripts. Right? People would, so even if something was being read, even if something existing right was being read, it would have been read publicly. Right? You would be hearing a text right, from somebody else, generally with a lot of other people around. Right? You would never be accessing a text privately the way we do today. And that struck me as, as very interesting. Right? That, and, and I started thinking about, well, what's the difference uh, between accessing a text privately and accessing a text through and with um, other people? And when we think about it, when, when we think about learning, even though, of course, in, in, uh, here in our yeshiva here in Grisha and another yeshiva around the world, um, generally, uh, generally speaking, people do learn together. And Judy, where is Judy? Right, so Judy spoke so beautifully before right, about learning together with Rivka and, and, and the notion of engaging with another person around the text. Um, nevertheless, I think we still see the primary thing as being the text. It's, it's the person and the text, right? The vector is here's the person, here's the text, the person approaches the text, and the text kind of discloses its meaning to the person, kind of like that sentence I I paraphrased you before, right? How do you know what the book says? You open the book and you read it and the book tells you what it has to say, right? Um, And even if we learn from a teacher, and most people uh, here, especially when they they first start studying Talmud, for example, uh, certainly before art school came into the world, right? Most people who started studying Talmud, and even today I think most people uh, who start studying Talmud are studying it uh, through a teacher, right? It's very hard to figure out how to learn Talmud by yourself. Um, Nevertheless, the teacher is the person who teaches you how to study this text. And the educational idea, uh, which may or may not always be realized, probably very often it's not realized, but the ideal, or the idea that people are trying to get at is uh, to make you into an independent learner, right? That's a big word in our educational uh, discourse, right? We want independent learners. What's an independent learner? Right, somebody who can independently open a text, or maybe now the internet, but somebody who can independently access knowledge, right, who doesn't need a teacher to mediate that. Right? That's our goal. Right? So uh, the, the notion, again, is it's the person and the book, the person and the text. Uh, but of course, um, what Ang invites us to think about by saying that reading privately is a very, very new kind of activity, uh, is that in a world where actually people are not reading texts, but in a world of oral study of texts, um, the primary vector would not have been a student and a book. Right? Rather, the primary vector would have been a student and a teacher. Right? And the book is that which the teacher is giving, right? the book or the text or the Torah, right? or the knowledge, is that which a teacher is giving over to a student. It's a very different, uh, very different idea. 
And so what I wanted to, to do now, this was sort of all kind of introduction, uh, what I want to do now is um, start with a text that kind of describes what that might look like, right? what it might look like to actually be introduced to a text in this oral mode, um, and from there to try to play out what I, uh, what I imagine to be uh, some major distinctions between how we think about teachers and students and learning and text uh, when we imagine doing that in an oral universe. So the text I want to look at with you next is on the bottom of that first page, very, very famous text from Masechet um, Eruvin. And the text imagines how, um, how oral Torah, how what's called here Mishnah, but it doesn't mean the Mishnah, capital M, capital M Mishnah. It means the, the taught, the oral tradition. Right? How that oral tradition um, was organized for study, or is organized for transmission or for memorization. And um, it does that by projecting into the distant past, projecting into the time of the giving of the Torah, the time of Moshe, um, a description that probably in many ways uh, is a projection of what people did in study circles in the time of the rabbis. So it says the following thing, Rabbanan Ketad Seder Mishnah, Moshe Laman Mi Moshe learned from God. Nifnat Aaron Vishanalo Moshe Pirko. So then Aaron came in and Moshe repeated the passage for Aaron. Nistalek Aaron, Vyashavli Small Moshe. So then Aaron moves aside and sits on Moshe's left. So by the way, where was Aaron until he moved to Moshe's left? What? Right, he was in front of him, right? That's actually quite important, right? He's sitting in front of Moshe. It's a face-to-face handing over of, of, the, of the knowledge, right? So now uh, Aaron sits to Moshe's left. Aaron's sons come in. Vishanalahem Moshe Pirkan and Moshe repeats the passage to them. Nistalkubanav Moshe small Aaron. So then Aaron's sons uh, move aside and one sits on Moshe's right and the other sits to the left of Aaron who's sitting on Moshe's left. Then Nichnesu Zikainim, the elders come in, Vishanalah and Moshe Pirkan, and then Moshe repeats the passage to the elders. Nistalko Zikainim, the Zikainim move on the side, Nichnesu Kalaan, Vishanalah and Moshe Pirkan. And then the rest of the people came in, and Moshe repeated the passage to the people. Nimsu, Biyara Ronapa, Biyapa Nashlasha, Biyahaz Gainim Shnaim, Biyar Kalaan Echad. Okay, so at this point, Aaron has heard the passage four times, his sons have heard it three times. The elders twice, and all the people one time. Now Nistalek Moshe Vishnalehen Aharon Kirkas. So now Moshe moves aside, perhaps Moshe leaves the scene, and Aharon uh, repeats the passage. Then Aharon moves aside, and the, his sons repeat the passage. His sons move aside, and the elders repeat the passage. And so now what's happened? Everybody has heard it four times. Mikan Amar Rabbi Eliezer, this is on the ninth line. From, based on this, Rabbi Lezer says, adam right, A person must repeat, right, must repeat the teaching for his student four times. Skip a line. Rabbi Akiva says, How do we know that a person is obligated to repeat for his student until the student learns it? Shinemar, Vilamda et Yisrael. Right, this is from like Tovachem at Shiva Hazot. They write down the song right, and teach it to Bnei Israel. So you have to teach it. Uminai Nashit Tehis to do up Bishvi Hen. 
and hat work, Rashi's version of this is, or Tosa, I forget, Minayin, um, uh, right? How do you know that the teacher has to work to help the students organize it in their mouths? In other words, the teacher has to not only teach it to the student, but help the student organize it in memory. Because it says you have to put it in their mouths. How do you know that the teacher has to explain the meaning uh, of the text to the students? These are the laws that you shall put before them. And now the Talmud tells a little story. Rabbi Preda had a particular student, and Rabbi Preda would regularly teach this student, would repeat the teaching for the student 400 times, so that the student would learn it. One day, Rabbi Preda knew that he was going to have to go someplace to do some sort of a mitzvah, or some sort of Mitzvah opportunity, stuff as more like that. And he knew he was going to have to leave the session early. And he started teaching his student, and the student was not capable of learning. So Rabbi Prada said to the student, Ha'idna Maishna, what's, what's different today? How come you're not able to learn today? The student says to him, Mehahi Shata, the Amule Lamar, Ikamilta, the Mitzvah, Askarladate, Bechal Shata, Amina Hashtakaima, Hashtakaima, because from the time that I heard that you're going to need to leave, I'm so distracted because I keep thinking you're going to leave and I'm not going to be able to learn so I can't, I can't focus. Just pay attention and I'll teach it to you. And then he went and taught him, like, repeated it for him 400 additional times. And then the Gemara says, after a little ellipsis there, Amra Krista, Right, Torah can only be acquired through simanim. What are simanim? It's those little mnemonics. Right? We only have a few mnemonics in the text of the Gemara. There used to be a lot more mnemonics. Right? Torah can only be acquired. Hi, Kiva. That's good. You're really distracting. Who is telling me? Torah can only be acquired through right, some sort of mnemonic organization of the material. Okay, so what we see here right, is um, you know, a kind of portrait. Right? A kind of portrait of what it might have looked like. Again, this is projected back to the time of Moshe, but what it might have looked like when students would come before a teacher uh, to learn a text. Right? They would sit directly facing the teacher, the teacher would say it over and would repeat it enough times, likely in the company of other students, and would repeat it enough times until the students would be able to fix it in their own memories, right? would repeat it to them, would help them organize it in a way that they could retain it in memory, would explain it to them. Right? This is very, very different from the notion that how do you know what Mishnah says? You open it up and you read it. Right? There's no person in the book. It's only the person uh, and the teacher and all the other people around. Right? A very, very different um, idea. So with all that in the background, I keep saying this is the introduction, this is the end of the introduction, with all that in the background, I now want to kind of highlight um, certain, um, what I find salient uh, aspects of uh, what this might mean for how we think about study and how we think about text. So the first point, I think, uh, emerges very directly from what we just read um, and from um, Ang's point about uh, the difference between reading a book privately and hearing, hearing text. Um, which is that uh, in a world of Torah Shabal Pen, uh, in a world in which knowledge is transmitted orally, um, the text is always learned within a relationship, within a relationship with other people. Um, Pinny, your friend, right, would actually have to be there. 
but uh, right, you wouldn't just have read about him being a teller, he would be telling you about those experiences. Right? So the text is always learned within a relationship, minimally, minimally a relationship between a student and the student's teacher, and more likely the relationship between a student uh, and the teacher and a group of other uh, disciples, perhaps senior to you, perhaps junior to you. Right? There would be a group of people around learning with and from uh, a teacher. So learning would always be relational and learning would always be communal. There would be no such thing as private learning. Right? It's always you and somebody else. The next thing I want to point out, which is I think so utterly different from um, the way we think about text, is that in the world of Torah Shabbat, that the text actually has no existence outside of people. Like the text doesn't exist anywhere uh, outside of the teacher, the student, or the community of learners. Um, and I want to talk about um, several uh, ramifications of that. The first one is, I think, something um, very important, and I think this still exists. That's what I think still exists in um, some attenuated ways uh, in the world of the yeshiva, but certainly. Uh, in a much more attenuated way than it would have existed uh, in ancient times when Torah Shabbat was actually Torah Shabbat and it certainly I think barely exists at all uh, in um, our regular uh, educational settings in our schools and our universities um, and that's the notion of the teacher as a holder of the tradition that uh, the teacher is not so, just somebody who teaches you but the teacher is somebody who embodies uh, the tradition you have a person that you study with. I, unfortunately, have a kid who is applying to colleges right now. Uh, anybody else have a kid who is applying to colleges right now? I'm sorry. Um, so that's all they think about is the college. You know, where it is, what its ranking is, how hard it is to get into, maybe what courses. They're certainly not thinking, I want to go there to study with so-and-so. Maybe when you get to graduate school you think that way. But they're not thinking that way at all. But that would not have been so in ancient times. Right? You would be searching for a teacher. And the teacher would not just be the person who uh, was the best teacher, right, in the sense that they give a great lecture, but the teacher would be somebody um, who you could revere, right, who embodied the tradition, not just in the sense that they had it in their memory, but who literally uh, embodied, right, the teacher was somebody from whom you would learn a way of life. Uh, if you turn to the next text, there's a kind of hyperbolic um, um, description of this. Uh, this is actually two texts later, it's the second text on the second page of text. Uh, from Rachot, son of Ben Amud Aleph. A very well-known text. Tanya Amar Rabbi Akiva, Pham Achat Nechnasti Achar Rabbi Yoshua Lebeit HaKisei, Lamadati Mimenu Shlashad Bari. Rabbi Akiva says, one time uh, I followed Rabbi Yoshua uh, into the bathroom and I learned three things from him. I'll skip the three things he learned. Uh, the fourth line, Amar Le Ben Azai Ben Azai Sinasim, Ad Tan He Azta Panim Rabcha. Were you so. Uh, what, what's the right word for him? Azta Panim, right? Azta Panim, right? Yeah, such an. What? Insolence. Right, insolence uh, with your teacher. Amarli Rabbi Kim says in Torah, even Alman I need to read. This is Torah and I need to learn it. Now, this is not Torah in the sense of a, a text. This is not Torah in the sense of halakha. Like, this is Torah in the sense of a way of life, and you can only learn it from the teacher who embodies it. And then a similar story repeats. Then uh, Azai says, she ends up doing the same thing with Rabbi Akiva. And then, finally, the third story uh, is five uh, lines to the bottom. Rav Kahana goes, and he actually 
lies down under the bed of rocks. It's getting a little more personal here. And he uh, is listening as Rav is uh, having relations with his wife. And uh, Rav Kahana is so surprised at what he hears that he actually, rather foolishly in my, uh, in my book, actually makes a comment. <laughs> not, not a very smart thing to do. And uh, two lines at the bottom, Rav Kahana, um, that Rav realizes he's there and he says, Kahana, ha ha ha, you're here? Yeah, here. Love or ara, right? This is not really, you know, it's not Garahara. This is not really the way we do things. To which Rav Kahana says to him, once again, Torah, he will mode, I need to real. But this is Torah, I need to learn. So there's simply no, no limits to this, right? Absolutely no limits to this. Now, there may or may not be a critique of, of Rav Kahana's behavior. That, that's beside the point. The fact is, a disciple, and what we're really talking about here, is not a student, we're talking about a disciple. And a very different word. We don't use that word much, at least within the Jewish tradition. Christians use it much more. Right? But we're really talking about the notion of discipleship. Right? That you have a master, and that master uh, is somebody who, who embodies the teaching in, in, in the full sense of the word. Um, Jaffe, who I don't have with me, but uh, Martin Jaffe has a book called Torah in the Mouth, uh, where he talks about this notion of discipleship, uh, and he talks about uh, discipleship in relation to Torah Shabbat and he says that issue, right, that issue in the insistence in oral teaching um, is the precise role of face-to-face encounters in the shaping of disciples. Where, after all, was the real text of instruction? In the written word or in the living presence of the teacher? Okay, so the first um, thing that I want to talk about uh, in relation to the notion that the text does not exist outside of people uh, is that that really uh, has uh, very strong implications for how we see a teacher. Right? A teacher is not just a teacher. Uh, a teacher uh, is somebody who, who embodies the tradition in this full um, sense of it. The next thing I want to talk about in relation to that uh, is the notion of transmission. And this is something that Dreyfus had mentioned. If you recall, the first thing uh, I read from, from the, the Buddhist book uh, was Dreyfus making the point that even though the texts are available in writing, a person will not access those texts until uh, the teacher first recites it for him. And that's considered an act of transmission and is considered very important. Um, and if the teacher is transmitting Torah to you, uh, what that means is that you become part of a chain of transmission in which your teacher right, is the last of the previous links. Again, quoting Jaffe, Jaffe says, one could hear the tradition, he's using the word hear because lishma in rabbinic language means not just to regularly hear, but to hear, to receive a tradition. One could hear the tradition only from someone who had himself heard it from his teacher. That means when you're hearing a tradition from your teacher, you're hearing it from somebody who heard it from his teacher, who heard it from his teacher, right? You're, you've entered in a chain of transmission. Um, there's an article by Yaakov Elman and Daphne Efrat on traditional Islamic education, where also memorization uh, and discipleship is very much emphasized. Um, and they say the important element is of personal contact, of hearing the text directly from the sheikh and entering through him an unbroken chain of authority. So when you hear it from your teacher, who himself has it in transmission, you are entering a chain of transmission, becoming the next link uh, in that chain. Um, so this I want to look at the next text that you have here. This is, uh, anybody here doing Daph Yomi? Yeah? Raise your hand if you're doing Daph Yomi. Yay! That, yeah, that's transmission, right? I do a Siyom and he decides to judge it too. So now those are in the So if, you, if you're doing Daph Yomi, and if unlike me, you actually remember what you did the day or week before, um, you will remember this text because it was just about a week or so ago. 
Um, so we're not going to do the whole text, but let's, uh, let's start with the sixth line. Um, Rabbi Yochanan is very dissed. Right? Rabbi Yochanan is walking along, and he bumps into uh, a disciple, Rabbi Eliezer, because Rabbi Eliezer ben, ben Padat, and uh, he's annoyed about certain things, but finally on the sixth line he says what's really bugging him, and uh, he complains, he says, this Babylonian right, did a terrible thing, because he did not teach the teaching in my name. Right? He, he transmits teachings, but he doesn't say that he got it from me. So uh, all sorts of people tried to comfort Rabbi Yochanan <laughs> to make him feel better. Yes, I am in second page, last text on the page, sixth line. Okay, now moving to the text. So different people try to comfort Rabbi Yochanan and make him feel better about this perceived slight. And Rabbi Yaakov Bar Eidi actually succeeds in making him feel better. He says to him, it says in Sefer Yehoshua, Kol Asher Tziva Hashem et Moshe Avdo, Kain Tziva Yehoshua. Right, that whatever uh, God commanded uh, Moshe, right, uh, Yoshua uh, fulfilled. And he says, Moshe, can we imagine that throughout Yoshua's long leadership, every time he opened his mouth, he said, Thus spake Moses? Of course not. That would just be a terrible rhetorical turnoff, right? So we didn't do that, right? He was just saying what he needed to say. But nevertheless, he says, El Yehoshua Yoshev Vidoresh, Rabbi Yehoshua would sit and teach, Viodin Shatarashal Moshehi. But everybody knew that every word that Yehoshua said, he got from Moshe. You too, Rabbi Yochanan, right? El Azar, El Yehoshua Yoshev Vidoresh, right? Your disciple is sitting and teaching, but everybody knows that the Torah is really yours. Right? So, in other words, on the one hand, Rabbi Yochanan had an expectation that the disciples should say the teaching in the name of his master, and we know how emphasized that is in rabbinic texts, right? Emphasize, right? So and so in the name of so and so, a big emphasis on transmitting in the name of the master. But on the other hand, we also know that if somebody has a master, right, and all of his Torah is from that person, then whenever that person speaks, he's in fact transmitting the Torah uh, of that teacher. And then it goes on and says, so why was it so important to Rabbi Yochanan? that when his student spoke his teachings that he mentioned uh, his name and um, it, uh, mentions, uh, it mentions a couple of, uh, a couple of different uh, a couple of different ways of saying a very similar idea um, the final one is um, on the third to last and second to last line something we're familiar with from other texts uh, as well Dovev Sisei Yishenim right, he moves the, the, the lips of those who sleep Right, second to last line. So tehem shel tzadikim kevan sheomim dvar lachami tehem shel tzadikim sifto tehem rochashot dimahem bekever. Right, that even after a, a person has departed, if somebody says over uh, their teachings, uh, it's as if the, the lips of the person who is no longer with us are still moving. And right? you give life in some way uh, to the person uh, who is the originator uh, of these teachings. And then finally, it says Gidol says Omer Shmuel b'shem Omro. I'm not going to finish the sentence because I actually want to get back to that uh, later. But Gittel says that somebody who says a teaching in the name of the person who said it, right, the person who's saying that teaching needs to envision, right, needs to see before his eyes the person who taught him that teaching. So if you're transmitting the teaching of your teacher while you're transmitting that teaching, you actually have to see the person before your eyes. 
Now, there's a couple of things we could say about that, but one possible, one possible way of understanding it uh, is what the Karbon Haeda says. Right? The Karbon Haeda says, why do you have to envision the teacher who told you this teaching? And what the Karbon Haeda says is because only if you envision it will you truly get the teaching right, right? Because the teaching is not just the words of the teaching, right? The teaching is something that's embodied in the person of the teacher. And in transmitting that teacher's teaching, Right, you can only fully transmit it by actually invoking right, in your own imagination, in your own memory, in your own vision, and actually imagining that teacher right, in, in the fullness of that teacher's personhood, right, seeing the teaching in the context of the fullness uh, of the teacher's personhood. Um, so two related points then. Right? One is the notion of the teacher as the holder of the tradition and what difference that makes in terms of how we see our teachers. Um, and the other is the notion that in hearing a teaching from the teacher, you enter into a transmission. Right? That the teacher is the holder of a transmission from his teachers and has now offered that to you and you become a link uh, in that transmission um, and that that teacher continues to exist and all the teachers before him continue to exist through your uttering of that teaching. A third aspect of the notion that the text doesn't exist outside of people um, is that individuals are responsible for the existence of the text. Uh, in terms of the next page, a very famous story, uh, which we won't, won't read the whole story, but it's a story about Yanai, King Yanai. Uh, King Yanai is having a feast, um, and an uh, evil dude uh, gets him very angry at the Pushim, at the Pharisees, um, and convinces him that he should uh, crush them, right, that he should destroy uh, all of the Pharisees. And Yanai um, thinks that politically that might be a very good idea, but he has one concern. And this is the bolded section of the top text on page three. Yanai says, right, But if I crush the Prushim, who after all, in the rabbinic imagination, right, are the holders of Torah, right, if I crush them, what's going to happen to Torah? Um, to which the response is, Hare kucha umunachat bekeren well, no problem. The Torah is rolled up and it's put in the corner. There it is, in fact. Right? Torah is right there. You can get rid of all the Prushim. And the Torah is right there. Anybody who wants, opens it up, unrolls it, and reads it. What's the big deal? To which Rav Nachman by Yitzchak says, right, that was a very apricorsist thing to say. Because he should have said, well, that may be true of Torah Shebuchtah, but what about Torah Shebaal Peh? Right, the point being that Torah Shebaal Peh is not Kucha Umunachat Bekeren Zavit. It's not rolled up and put in a chest someplace where anybody who wants to approach it can approach it, because Torah Shebuchtah actually doesn't exist anywhere outside of in the heart and mind and mouth of its learners. Right? And if the learners aren't there, there actually is no Torah Shebaal Peh. Right, that puts a very different responsibility on the learner, right? Because Torah only exists to the degree that you retain it, Belpet, that you retain it in your memory. And in fact, if you look at the next text, it strikes me, this could be wrong, but it just strikes me um, that this is how we should understand the, the, the famous mission in the third paragraph of Mishnah Avot. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Hamelech Baderach Vishonet Umafsik Mishnah Tov. If somebody's walking along on the way and uh, 
this is a real Yetahara of mine. So my, my revisionist reading of this is, 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 is probably very, um, very uh, self, um, self-serving. Nevertheless, I think it's probably true. Right? He's walking alone on the way, and the person is Shoneh. So we usually say studying, but I'll say here, is repeating the Torah Shabbat and the person ceases from his learning or from repeating Torah Shabbat and the person says what a beautiful tree this is what a beautiful row in the garden this is scripture accords uh, it to him as if he has uh, as if he's worthy of death so I, th- you know, I learned this as a little kid and probably many of you did, and I, I always thought of it, as I think many of us do, as, as a kind of Bifel Torah text, right? You're learning Torah, and you stop learning Torah to take a hike or to appreciate the trees or whatever, right? That's a terrible, terrible thing. But it strikes me that that's probably not what it's saying at all, right? That it's talking about Mishnah, right? In the sense of repeating the tradition. Because we know that in order to actually have the tradition in memory, you need to repeat it over and over and over again. And so if you're doing that, right, because you have to do that at all times, right, and it's the time of day when you're repeating the tradition and you stop repeating the tradition to appreciate nature, right, you are ke'ilu mitchayev benafsho because the tradition does not exist outside of your retaining it in memory, you and you and you and all of us, right? The text simply doesn't exist. And what that means is that individuals have a responsibility for the existence of this text, right? It does not exist um, outside of the person. Um, and the fourth thing that I want to mention in terms of the notion that the text does not exist outside of the people who study it um, is, uh, and this was segues from this mission in a book, um, the importance of memorization. Um, memorization is something that I think nowadays uh, in schools there's, there's almost none of, very, very little memorization going on in schools. I think in elementary school we memorize, you know, Shiratavara, Filatana and Aserat maybe, and, and in my fifth grade class we memorized the first parak of memorized the first parak of Rachod and Revelation tested us and we got Parker pens, and I still have that Parker pen. Do you still have your Parker? Uh, we were in the same class in the Manhattan Day School, but um, but outside of that there was very little memorization. I suspect in most schools there's, there's even less memorization now. Memorization is seen as something silly, as a complete waste of children's time and intellectual effort. Because after all, everything's available in books, or nowadays, of course, everything's available um, on the web. But of course, in this kind of a culture, memorization is extremely important. And as I pointed out, even in this culture, where the texts are totally available in writing, where the monks actually can see the text in writing, they still have to memorize um, the text. Because the text exists uh, inside them. And I want to um, read a very, another very brief uh, excerpt from Dreyfus, where he talks about um, how memorization um, happens. Um, he says um, the process of memorization is oral, a u r a l, right through hearing. Without relying on visual and mnemonic devices, Tibetan monks memorize their texts by vocalizing them. The only support is a tune to which the words are set. Um, and he goes on a bit, and then he says. Um, if the whole day is devoted to memorization, the session is often finished around noon, just before the young monk has lunch. In other words, he spent the whole morning uh, memorizing the text. The evening is spent practicing the text previously memorized. And if you spent the whole day memorizing a new text, 
and in the evening you're practicing texts previously memorized. The student starts by reciting, by reciting that morning's passage several times until his recitation is fluent and almost effortless. He then goes back to the parts of the same text learned on preceding days, ending with the passage learned the same day. He may add other texts learned previously. This exercise, which usually takes one or two hours, is essential to ensure that passages once memorized are not forgotten. At first, the passage newly memorized, which could be recited quite fluently in the morning, comes in the evening with difficulty, if at all. It needs to be fixed again in the memory, a text best done just before the student goes to sleep. After a night of sleep, the text starts to take its fixed form, which has to be constantly strengthened until it becomes ingrained, a process that takes many days of repetition. In this way, the student's hold on previous passages increases, and the new passage is integrated gradually into the memorized text as a whole. It's only when the texts are so well learned that they come to mind automatically that frequent recitation is no longer needed. At that point, reciting them a few times a year can keep them alive in the monk's memory. This is really incredibly similar uh, to passages that we have uh, in the Talmud that describes how people would be misadir their mishnah, and how people would memorize or review, uh, you know, reorganize in memory uh, their teachings. Um, in fact, if you look at the if you look at the bottom of um, actually, let's look for a second uh, previous page, right? the second page of uh, yeah, the, the the top of the second page of text, um, the text from Tanit, or the fifth line. Reish Lakish have a masade matnitin abayin zimni kineged abayin yom shnit natura va'ayi lukame de Rabbi Yochanan. Reish Lakish would organize, right, organize his oral Torah, right, would organize his, his Torah Shabbat 40 times, corresponding to the 40 days in which the Torah was given, and only then would he come before Rabbi Yochanan. What's he coming before Rabbi Yochanan to do, presumably? What? Like, just speak up. To recite it, maybe to be tested on it, or maybe. Sorry? He has it right, right? And what else might he be doing? Teach. Well, Rabbi Yochanan is his teacher, right? So teacher goes, and colleague. It goes back and forth. Okay, so could be, could be. And what else could he be doing at this point once he's got it totally fixed in memory? Repeat it. What? Okay, it could be he's getting an extra assignment, and it could be also, right, that at this point he's going to start the analytical process, right? Once he's got it down in memory, now you go to the next stage of study, which is analyzing it, the dialectics, right? Ravada Barava would do it 24 times, corresponding to all the books of Torah Nebimachtubim, and only then would he come before Rava. So very similar, uh, very similar idea. Furthermore, we see at the bottom of the third page of the handout, and this is from the very end of Masech and Mihilat, Rabbi Shifatia says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, anybody who reads, meaning reads scripture without nima, without the, uh, probably without the tune, uh, or recites oral Torah without a song. Allah HaKetuv Omer, scripture says about that person, that I gave them uh, laws which are not good. Rashi says, uh, Tosa says, what does it mean below zima, that you repeat the oral tradition without a song? He says, now notice he's talking about the past, because the Rishonim are already in a world in which they are learning from manuscripts. Right? Tosa is no longer in a world where people are learning Torah Shabbat orally, nor memorizing Torah Shabbat So he says, past tense, 
שהיו רגילים לשנות משניות בזמלה, because people used to uh, repeat uh, the משניות with a song, with a tune, לפי שהיו שונים אותן על פה, because they would repeat them uh, by heart. ועל ידי כך היו נזכרים יותר. It was easier, right? It would help them memorize it uh, if they said it to a tune. Well, Dreyfus does exactly the same thing, actually. Right? He says, um, you would repeat it, as we just saw, you repeat it many times. A very loud recitation. He discussed, you must do this, by the way, in courtyards. Anybody who's been to Nepal or somewhere place, you can actually see this. It's, it's really uh, remarkable. Um, it's a courtyard full of monks shouting, right, screaming <laughs> at the top of their lungs, rocking their body, right, the monks shuffle, uh, to a tune, the texts have a rhythmic, rhythmic pattern. And what's this about? Why do we need to memorize texts? Okay, so again, it could be we need to memorize texts because they don't exist in writing. But if texts do exist in writing, what is the purpose of memorizing texts? Um, so Dreyfus talks about the notion of the text penetrating the mind. Um, that the text takes on a life of its own, right? It's like a living thing inside of you. It takes on a life of its own. The text is absorbed. Furthermore, he talks about there being a root text, right? That's the core text. For us, that would be the Mishnah. There's a root text that you memorize, and that you memorize verbatim. And that then becomes the structure or template around which all the other knowledge that you're going to acquire is organized or sto- and stored. This is, in fact, very much what would happen uh, in, let's say, probably the time of the Amoraim and probably the time of the Geonim, in fact, when the Mishnah would be verbatim memorized, and that would be the structure around all the other traditional debate and commentary and other texts uh, would be organized. So you have this uh, a kind of an inner template of knowledge which lives uh, inside you. The knowledge is not just available, you know, let me look it up on Google, right? It's not just available, but rather, he says, text must inform one's thinking and become integrated into one's way of looking at the world. The text is internalized, uh, it's a spiritual resource, you appropriate the text in an intimate way. Like the text is something that lives uh, inside of you. Um, so that's the first set of things that I wanted to, um, to talk about. Right? What does it mean to say that the text only exists inside people? Right? And we talked about uh, the notion of the teacher, that the teacher is seen differently, the notion of transmission, the notion of people being responsible for the very existence of the text, um, and the notion of the internalization of the text through memorization. The second set of things I wanted to talk about uh, is related but a little different. And this is the notion um, that, um, again, going back to that original uh, quotation that I read, that I uh, paraphrased you about the Mishnah, right? You just open the book and read it and it tells you what it's about. Right? The notion that um, in an oral uh, in a culture where texts are transmitted orally, a culture, if we specifically think about the Mishnah, for example, um, that the text doesn't have to, and in fact doesn't, actually disclose its meaning to the student. Right? That the meaning of the text is mediated uh, by a teacher. Um, again, that's quite different from how we think of it nowadays. We think of teachers as perhaps helping us learn how to learn, right? But ultimately, we imagine ourselves as beginning as, as being able to approach the text directly. And here, what I'm saying is, in a world where nobody ever approached the text without the mediation of a teacher, a text would not need to, and in fact, never would, independently disclose its meaning. Let me let me talk about a few uh, a few elements of that. Number one, 
presumably, and we saw this in our text in Eruvin, right? Remember Rabbi Akiva says that the teacher doesn't simply teach the text and doesn't only then help the student organize the text in memory, but he has to let our oath lo panim, that the teacher in transmitting the text is explaining the text. And of course that would always be so, right? When you open a book, right? So nowadays, you know, Judy, had you opened the mission without the hati, that you would have had an inordinately difficult time uh, understanding what the Mishnah is saying. But if there was no such thing as you opening up the Mishnah, right, if the way you got the Mishnah was by going to somebody who already knew the Mishnah, that person, even if they were merely reciting it to you, <coughs> without explanation, let's imagine the most extreme case, they are simply reciting it to you, no explanation. There's still an explanation in there, right? The very fact that somebody is reciting a text is different from reading a text because, for example, there's intonation. There's, you hear a question, you hear an answer. Right? Nowadays, we have Rashi to say, Bishmiya, or Tevutzahi. Well, Rashi, a hundred years before Rashi, a hundred or so years before Rashi, nobody would ever have written a commentary that told you this is a question or this is a response. Because you would have heard that when you access the text, right? the text would have been spoken to you and you would have heard a question and response. So in the most, most conservative uh, 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 way we can imagine the text being transmitted, the text is not simply unmediated. The text is mediated through the very fact that somebody is speaking the text to you. Um, beyond that, presumably, right, the teacher actually is explaining it to you. Unlike Kahati, who has to try to figure out what you need to know, and he's very good at it. And Rashi is awesome at it, right? It's amazing, right? Yeah, I, I'm more surprised when Rashi didn't figure out that he wasn't going to know what that word meant because he's so good, right? A thousand years ago at knowing what word I'm going to need to know. You know, it's, it's, it's incredible, right? But the fact of the matter is when you have the teacher there, nobody has to write a standardized commentary to figure out what you need to know because the teacher knows you as the student and the teacher is able to figure out exactly what you're having a hard time understanding and what's simple for you. And for this we have a very sweet text uh, on the fourth page of the handout, the top of the page. Uh, this is the tshuva um, of Sar Shalom, Shalom Gaon. And what happened was that people uh, outside Bavel would write questions to the Gaonim, uh, questions about the, all sorts of things, including the meanings of different sugyos. So Sar Shalom Gaon is trying to explain a very difficult sugya to this uh, person who wrote a question, and he says this is a very, very complex and difficult sugya. And on the second line he says, you know, if you were before us, if you were sitting in our presence, right, we would be able to explain it so well. We would be able to clarify it so well. third line, because when a student sits in front of his teacher, and they're discussing right, the teacher can, can figure out from what the student is saying and can figure out the, how his heart is leaning right? how the student is understanding what the student is missing what's clear to him what's difficult for him and he can explain it to him he can explain it to him until he lightens up his eyes right? he illuminates his eyes and he explains uh, he, he, he explains it to him. How much can you do in writing? The person's not in front of you. And this is something so obvious, right, that a teacher, face-to-face -face teacher, has the capacity to teach in a way that can never happen through writing and frankly can never happen through 
downloading a video, even if it's from the Khan Academy. Um, But we sometimes forget that, right? That a face-to-face teacher can teach in a way that is simply not available through through any other medium. So, so again, the notion that the text not only doesn't disclose its meaning to the student, but it doesn't have to disclose its meaning to the student because the text can only be taught to the student with a teacher present. But I want to go beyond that um, and suggest, and, and many, uh, many people have suggested this, um, that when you have a text which is composed to be transmitted orally, um, that the text not only need not be designed to, to disclose its meaning in an unmediated way, but that perhaps the text is purposely designed not to disclose its meaning in an unmediated way. Right? If you think about the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah is a text that requires elucidation. For example, I, I chose this Mishnah virtually at random. If you look um, on the page you were just on, right past the English um, passage, you look at uh, Mishnah Sanhedrin, Parathet, Mishnah Vav, very famous Mishnah. Habab Machteret Nidon al Shem Sofo. Hayabab Machteret Veshavayat Hachavit. Right, many of us who went to the standard day schools learned this, right, this week in 11th grade, right, as Yarva month, we all do this in 11th grade. Person who comes in the Mahteret, I'll just, I'll translate this very loosely and poorly for the purpose of the moment. Okay, somebody's coming through the basement, he is judged uh, based on his end. If he's coming through the basement, then he breaks the barrel. If he has blood, or let's say if there's blood guilt in reference to him, uh, he is uh, obligated, but if he has no blood, he is not obligated. Now, there is no way in the world that you could know what this text means if you don't know a huge host of things around the text. First of all, of course, you have to know the biblical text, but we'll leave that aside. It's an important point, right, how texts talk to each other, certainly within an oral context. We'll leave that aside. But there's so many things you would need to know, so many principles that are encoded in these 20 or so words that you simply could not know uh, if somebody didn't mediate this for you. And what I'm suggesting is that some people argue, and I think there's um, likely something to this, that Mishnah perhaps is not just that it, that Rebbe or whoever, right, didn't have to formulate it in a way that would disclose its meaning independently because after all, there was no such thing. There would always be a teacher teaching you. But to go beyond that, that some argue that Mishnah is purposely composed in such a way as to force you into all sorts of engagement, into all sorts of questions, into all sorts of uh, uh, discussion around it. That in fact it's composed to be a teaching text because after all it would only ever be accessed uh, in a context of teaching you and the teacher and the other students around trying together to understand this text uh, and talking about it. And so the next step would be the suggestion that the teacher is not only Right, explaining the text, but what perhaps uh, Rabbi Yochanan was doing when Reish Lakish, after memorizing or going over a text 40 times, would appear before Rabbi Yochanan, that perhaps right, what the teacher would, would, would do at a certain stage in learning, uh, not perhaps, I'd say undoubtedly, that the teacher would also be teaching a way of learning. Um, and that the way of learning is part and parcel of the text. Right, that the text, again, uh, is, is, is composed in such a way that kind of demands you to engage with it and that therefore teachers would teach you a way of learning along uh, with teaching the text. Um, so that whenever you're accessing a text, you're accessing within, within 
an oral context of explication, argumentation, uh, and relating the text to other traditions. And I'm just going to humor myself for one second and read you a text which I think is kind of almost the opposite of that. Anybody here ever serve on grand jury? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Okay, great. Anybody here ever been an assistant DA? Okay, so I don't mean to parody uh, you, but I'm going to parody many people like you. I was on grand jury a couple of years and I learned many uh, things, most of which I wish I did not know um, about our legal system. But um, let me just tell you what happens in grand jury for those who haven't been on it and those who have, tell me if, if, you, if this rings a bell at all. Okay, so there's, I don't know, how many people in the room, half of them don't really have to be there, a couple of them might not understand English, but it doesn't really matter anyway. Uh, you need a certain number of bodies in order to raise your hand so the DA can then bring the thing to trial if, uh, if, if uh, anything, if all the stars align and the DA gets to do that. Um, so meanwhile, the DA presents this case, right, uh, presents the case, and then the DA says, I will now instruct you on the law, right? And so the DA now opens this, like, thick paperback called New York Penal Law. And the DA says the following thing. Now, I'll give you a case, okay, just for fun. This was not anything like any of the cases that I heard in my grand jury service, okay? Um, brother and sister are sitting at breakfast, and uh, the brother makes breakfast to the sister. And she's eating the scrambled egg, and he starts taunting her. Gee, I mean, I can't believe you can't make your own breakfast, and she's just trying to ignore him and, and eat it. And he keeps taunting her and annoying her, and finally she kind of throws a kitchen towel at him. But he goes on and annoys her some more, so she throws another kitchen towel at him. And he keeps taunting her and annoying her, so she finally picks up the plate of eggs and throws it at him. And well, what do you know? The plate breaks and cuts his arm. Um, and now uh, we are uh, being asked to find that, uh, that this person should be indicted for assault in the second degree. And so we open the uh, penal code and we read, uh, Article 120.052. A person is guilty of assault in the second degree when, with intent to cause physical injury to another person, he causes such injury to such person or to a third person by means of a deadly weapon or a dangerous instrument. Uh, at that point, the assistant DA will say, Ah, I need to instruct you on the meaning of injury. And they'll go to the back of the book. At this point, I may be making it up a little bit and read you the definition of injury, person, and they read the definition of person and it goes on, and then they say, I have now instructed you in the law, right? And if you're someone like me, who unfortunately was trained in Talmud, not in the penal law, raises your hand and says, but I have a question, and you articulate the question, the assistant DA will say, would you like me to read it to you again? <laughs> Am I right? More, more or less, yeah? Remind me not to go to my next door. <laughs> I'm exempt from another six and a half years. <laughs> The point is, now this is not how law is taught in law schools, I presume. It's taught through cases much more probably like Mishnah than like this. But the, the point is that the pretense, right, the pretense that the DA is asking you to engage in, which most people in the grand jury seem to buy, uh, I was obviously the um, bad person on the grand jury. Uh, the pretense is that this um, law code is self-sufficient, self-contained, comprehensive, and self-sufficient. By simply reading this, which he didn't have to read to me, he could just have the and hand it to me, I could have read it myself, assuming everybody on the grand jury was literate, which may not be true, that's a separate question. Um, uh, that, that he has now instructed me on the law, right? That this tells me everything I need to know. Now, of course, if you start thinking about it for a second, that's absurd. It doesn't tell me all that much. I still have no clue whether this plate uh, is uh, a dangerous instrument. Right? And I could well argue that if the other 
jurors didn't just want to raise their hand and say, let's move on to the next case. I, I could well argue that. But, but it's written in such a way that doesn't suggest, it doesn't invite you to argue, right? It invites you to imagine that somehow it's all been defined for you. And now you just have to kind of map it. Okay, play. Is it or isn't it? End of sentence. Indict or don't indict. Move on. And that is so different to me than, let's say, uh, the next mission I have on the page here. Right, a, a murderer who strikes his fellow uh, with a stone or with iron, uh, or he uh, holds him down uh, in the water or in the fire so that he can't get out of there, and the person dies. Your uh, chayat. Well, that's very nice. So I, I know now about stones and I know about iron, but I don't know anything about wooden clubs or, you know, does I know that I don't know, right? It has a case. And then I ha- it invites me to talk about is the current thing analogous and what ways is analogous and what ways is it different. And what I'm suggesting is that uh, Mishnah was, you know, perhaps uh, designed to engage people in discussion and that no doubt uh, part of the process of learning it was um, to try to uh, work out through debate this is what the Talmud is, of course, right? And one of the things the Talmud is, right? To work out through debate with your teacher and with the other students what is actually going on here. What do we need to know? What can't we possibly know, right? To draw analogies, to argue. Right? It's a, it, it requires a dialogue, and the dialogue would always be possible because you were never just opening up the law code. Right? You were hearing it, right, with others. So that debate was always uh, possible. We mentioned... Um, uh, two other things, and then and then uh, now I'll conclude. Um, the next thing I want to mention um, is uh, in the context of the notion that uh, the text does not disclose its meaning directly to the student um, is the notion that um, understanding of a text in the kind of world that that we're trying to imagine together um, that understanding of a text is not a private matter. I mean, you can have a private understanding of a text, but overall, that texts are understood through a shared uh, traditional understanding. And I, and I want to think about something sort of outside our tradition. Um, I want to think about the Protestant Reformation for a second. Right? One of the uh, tenets um, of the Protestant Reformation uh, is the notion of sola scriptura, right? scripture alone. Right? That we, as opposed to we Protestants, or as opposed to Catholics, right, believe um, that scripture is actually self-sufficient. Scripture is a little bit like, more interesting than probably, but a little bit like the New York Penal Code, right? That it is a book that you can open and read yourself. You don't need anybody else to mediate it, right? You don't need to access that book together with a tradition which is handed down by, let's say, the priests or <laughs> the fathers of the Catholic Church, right? That scripture uh, is revealed in such a way that each and every one of us can approach Scripture directly and discloses me. Does that sound familiar? Does anybody resonate with that idea? Hmm. Isn't that the way we learn in Jewish language? It's very much, right, very much what we do, right? The notion that we have a text, and every individual can approach that text, and everybody can come have a different idea about that text, and that's what makes the world turn, right? That's what makes the issue interesting, right? We can all open it, and we can all have our own idea. Um, now, the Protestant Reformation happened in what, the year 15, what year were the theses? 1532 or something? 15, my dates are terrible. Sometime in the first half of the 1500s, right? The printing press was, what year, 14, no, it wasn't 92 actually, it was something like that. <laughs> Many people have suggested 
that that notion, right, the notion that individuals approach scripture without the mediation of a traditional understanding, that that could only have happened after the invention of the printing press. Not necessarily because every Christian actually had their own copy of the Bible that they were able to read. Right? There was not by any means universal literacy. But the whole notion right, that you held a book in your hand, that you could hold a book in your hand, that books were all over the place, that every family could have their own Bible. Right? The whole notion of the word being in a book right, as opposed to the word being something that you heard in a certain cultural context suggests that you have access to it and that you bring your own ideas to it uh, or get your own ideas from it right, independently of, uh, of a shared uh, tradition. In fact, I would tell Ashkenazi, right, the author of the Shita Mikubet, that has a, has a tshuva uh, where he argues against people who now think that you can go directly to the Gemara to Pasca, right? Says that's not true. He says, "What are you talking about? We have a tradition of interpretation. We have a tradition of stock. You can't just go directly back to the Gemara to Paskin. He says, "People who think that think that it's as if the Gemara also is. Listen to this language, right? It's as if the Gemara also is karuch umunach kal harotzelil mod yavoviyil mod. What's he referencing? The story of Yanai, right? And the story of Yanai is in the Sefer. Tarshavachlav is there, and anybody can open it. But Tarshavachlav, not true at all. Tarshavachlav exists within people, which also means, right, that it exists within a tradition of interpretation. And he's saying people are now treating Tarshavachlav as if it's Tarshavachlav, that you can access it without the mediation of a traditional shared understanding uh, of its meaning. When does he write that? Uh, it's in uh, Siman Aleph. When? When does he write it? Give me a date. Date? Eliezer, help me out. Date. 15th century. Okay, something like that. Okay. Sometime between then and now. <laughs> that's, that's how I do history, basically. Okay, what, one, one, one more point before I, uh, before I close. Um, and this is a point that uh, Neil Dancing makes in a very interesting article that he has where he, where he um, talks about <coughs> how um, Talmud was studied orally throughout uh, throughout the Gonic period and how that changed uh, in, by the time of, uh, of the Rishonim. And Dantzik points out that actually that totally, well not totally, but very much uh, has an impact on how people see teachers and on how people are obligated to treat their teachers. And this is the very last text that you have, uh, that you have on the page here. Um, this is a text quoting a previous text that's quoting somebody else, so I'll leave all, all those who's quoting who. <coughs> and let's just go to the second line of the text. Actually, the end of the first line. Miyom shegalinu me'artzenu v'chavak v'et mikdashenu v'nishtabshu ha'artzot v'nitmatu ha'lovavot right from the time that we went into Gullus and the Beit HaMedish was destroyed, etc., 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 etc. But what he really means, that's his point is, what he really means is now, right, now that we are Rishonim, right, now that we are no longer right, in a world in which Torah was transmitted in the ways that we've been talking about for the last little while. Ein lomar din We no longer say the rule of the fear, the awe, the reverence uh, accorded to your master is like the reverence you accord heaven. And all of the laws which spell out the obligations of a student to his teacher are annulled. 
Why? Ki hasfarim v'hachidurim v'hateirushim hen hamorim lanu. Because uh, books and compositions and commentaries, they are our teachers. And this is a radically a different notion from uh, what we were talking about before. The notion that you can approach a text on your own um, brings along with it the, the diminution uh, of the notion uh, of a teacher. You know, a teacher who transmits the text, who embodies the text, uh, a teacher who teaches you how you're to read the text, and a teacher who holds on to uh, the traditional shared cultural understanding of a text. A very, very different um, idea of the teacher. Right, such that we no longer have any of those same rules about how we are to revere uh, our teachers that used, to, sorry, that used to hold uh, a long time ago. So I want to um, just uh, um, kind of sum up uh, with a sentence or two and then and close uh, by revisiting uh, a text that we looked at before. Um, what I've tried to do here is just really explore uh, or, or share with you some of the kind of uh, exploratory thinking that I've tried to do in, in the last few years about what it might have looked like uh, in a world in which uh, text, in which Torah was only ever accessed uh, in an oral context. And to think about uh, the difference that might make in how we see our teachers, in how we see our responsibility as learners, uh, in how we understand the process of teaching, and in fact, even in how we understand what a text is. Um, And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it's worth thinking about these things, uh, because even though, of course, we don't, can't, probably would not want to, I go back to such a world uh, and in fact we value many things about the way we access text now we value the independence of thinking that we bring to text for example um, I think it's worth thinking nevertheless about whether there are aspects uh, of this other universe that we can only imagine uh, that we might be missing and that might be something that we might think about whether uh, we should think about uh, when we construct our own educational settings when we study and when we, uh, when we teach uh, and again, a uh, very timely question, I think, uh, in, 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 in that we are standing at the cusp of yet another uh, revolution in the technology of how we, uh, how we access knowledge and in the ways in which that is impacting uh, some of the ways we think about constructing classroom and, and other educational settings. Um, I want to go back just, uh, just to close um, to the text uh, at the bottom of uh, the second page. The second page of text. You'll remember that um, this was the text about Rabbi Elkanan being dissed that his uh, students did not transmit teachings in his name, which led to a discussion of why it would be important to somebody uh, that indeed a, a student um, should uh, transmit a teaching in the teacher's name. Um, and it talked about um, it talked about the notion of a person's teachings living on uh, after them. And the very last line of that was this uh, statement by Giddle who said, um, that a person who says over a teaching uh, in the name of the person who originally said it should see that person, right, should see the original teacher of that teaching as if he is standing uh, before him. And we talked before about the, the notion that the Karban Ha'eda suggests uh, that only in that way can you actually get the teaching right, uh, because again, the teaching is not just the words of the teaching. The teaching are the teaching is embodied in the life, in the life of the teacher. But what I wanted to do, I, I didn't read the very end of that. Um, Gidel actually quotes a uh, cite a pasuk to prove this point, and the pasuk 
He cites this from Psalm um, 39, and it goes, Now, as for the context of the Psalm, what that seems to mean is that a person ought to walk, that a person ought to walk in the image, in the image, perhaps, of his teacher, right? That when you walk, right, you walk with the image of the teacher before you. You're walking with the image. Um, we know, of course, uh, toward the beginning of Sacred Great Sheep, right, Adam uh, begets, right, he begets in his own image, perhaps the notion that the person in whose image you walk, you are walking is your teacher, but your teacher also is your father, right, a spiritual sonship. Um, but I want to look at the Pasuk for uh, just for a second, uh, and I'll have to read this to you in the psalm. The psalm says this, Ashtit selem yitalech ish, achhevel yahamayun yitzvor v'lo yedami ospam. Which the Koran here translates, but selem not in the sense of the image, but selem in the sense of, um, well here it says vain show, but I think others translate shadow. And a person walks uh, in a shadow, right? a person is a, is a fleeting thing. And the end of the passage says, Yitzvor, Veloyedani Ospam. He gathers together, but he heaps things up, but he doesn't know who will gather them. And it strikes me that in the context of this uh, teaching in, in Shkalim, remember just before that it talked about David Sifei Shemin, that when we tell over a teaching in the name of the person who said it, even if that person is no longer with us, um, and that person's lips are moving in the grave. And when you tell over that person's teaching in some way, that person is still is still living. And I think the way the way Gidol is reading the pasuk is it's for a person is fleeting. The person walks in the shadow. It's for the person heaps up riches. But the person doesn't know what's going to happen to those riches after him. And that's really, I think, a, a description here of the sage. Right? The sage is somebody who amasses riches of learning, which is of Torah, again, it can only be amassed inside you because it's the Alpet. The person amasses these riches, but the person doesn't know, after all, the person himself is pleading, who will gather them in. And the idea is, I think, that when you tell over a teaching in that person's name, and you see that person before you, you are the one who is gathering those riches. You have gathered the riches that that person has heaped up in their lifetime, and by saying it over, in their name, and at the same time envisioning that person before you, um, you are really bringing that person to life, and you are keeping that person alive in your memory through their Torah um, and in the memory of others. Um, and I just want to say to, uh, to Barry and Akiva and uh, Hillel, no, Mayor, sorry, <laughs> and Mayor, uh, and Miriam and, and the entire family that I, I really uh, feel so strongly that this is what we're doing here today. Uh, in memory of, of Rishbaud, that um, not so much teaching her teachings, but teaching the teachings that she was, was studying and bringing, bringing more Torah to the world. And uh, I know for myself, I see so much her image in front of me now, and uh, thank you for that.